0: Hi, this is Dave, and you're listening to Reading With My Brothers. Hello, brother. Thanks for joining me again as we continue our journey through Thomas Watson's book, The Godly Man's Picture. This week, we're looking at what are sections 19 and 20 of chapter 4 in my Banner of Truth edition. A godly man is a man who does not indulge himself in any sin and a man who is good in his relationships. Let's get into it. Section 19. A godly man does not indulge himself in any sin. Though sin lives in him, yet he does not live in sin. Every man that has wine in him is not in wine. A godly man may step into sin through infirmity, but he does not keep on that road. Quote, see if there be any wicked way in me. Psalm 139, verse 24. Question. What is it to indulge sin? Answer one. To give the breast to it and feed it. As a fond parent humors his child and lets him have what he wants, so to indulge sin is to humor sin. Answer two. To indulge sin is to commit it with delight. Quote, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Second Thessalonians 2.12. In this sense, the godly man does not indulge sin. Though sin is in him, he is troubled at it and would gladly get rid of it. There is as much difference between sin in the wicked and the godly as between poison being in a serpent and in a man. Poison in a serpent is in its natural place and is delightful, but poison in a man's body is offensive and he makes antidotes to expel it. So sin in a wicked man is delightful being in its natural place, but sin in a child of God is burdensome and he uses all means to expel it. The sin is trimmed off the will is against it. A godly man enters his protest against sin. Quote, what I do, I allow not romans seven fifteen A child of God, while he commits sin, hates the sin he commits. Roman seven in particular, there are four sorts of sin which a godly man will not allow himself. Number one secret sins some are more modest than to commit gross sin. That would be a stain on their reputation, but they will sit brooding upon sin in a corner. Quote, Saul secretly practiced mischief. First Samuel 23, 9. All will not sin on a balcony, but perhaps they will sin behind the curtain. Rachel did not carry her father's images in a saddlecloth to be exposed to public view, but she put them under her and sat on them. Genesis thirty one thirty four. Many carry their sins secretly, like a candle in a dark lantern. But a godly man dare not sin secretly. First, he knows that God sees in secret. Psalm 44, 21. As God cannot be deceived by our subtlety, so he cannot be excluded by our secrecy. Second, a godly man knows that secret sins are in some sense worse than others. They reveal more guile and atheism. The curtain sinner makes himself believe that God does not see. Quote, Son of man, Hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. Ezekiel 8.12 Those who have bad eyes think the sun is dim. How it provokes God that men's atheism should give the lie to his omniscience. Quote, He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Psalm 94.9 Third, a godly man knows that secret sins shall not escape God's justice. A judge on the bench can punish no offense but what is proved by witnesses. He cannot punish the treason of the heart, but the sins of the heart are as visible to God as if they were written upon the forehead. As God will reward secret duties, so he will revenge secret sins. 2. Gainful Sins Gain is the golden bait with which Satan fishes for souls. Quote, the sweet smell of money. This was the last temptation he used with Christ. Quote, all these things I will give thee. Matthew four nine. But Christ saw the hook under the bait. Many who have escaped gross sins are still caught in a golden net. To gain the world, they will use indirect roots. A godly man dare not travel for riches along the devil's highway. Those are sad gains that make a man lose peace of conscience and heaven at last. He who gets an estate by injustice stuffs his pillows with thorns, and his head will lie very uneasy when he comes to die. Third, a beloved sin. There is usually one sin that is the favorite, the sin which the heart is most fond of. A beloved sin lies in a man's bosom as the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned on his bosom. John 13, A godly man will not indulge a darling sin. Quote, I kept myself from mine iniquity. Psalm 18, 23. Quote, I will not indulge the sin of my constitution to which the bias of my heart more naturally inclines. Quote, fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king. 1 Kings 22, 22, verse 31. A godly man fights this king's sin. The oracle of Apollo answered the people of Syria that if they would live in peace among themselves, they must make continual war with those strangers who are on their borders. If we would have peace in our souls, we must maintain a war against our favorite sin and never leave off till it is subdued. Question: How shall we know the beloved sin? Answer one: The sin which a man does not love. Start over. Let me breathe. Okay. Question. How shall we know the beloved sin? Answer one. The sin which a man does not love to have reproved is the darling sin. Herod could not endure having his incest spoken against. If the prophet meddles with that sin, it shall cost him his head. Men can be content to have other sins declaimed against, but if a minister puts his finger on the sore and touches this sin, their hearts begin to burn with malice against him. Herodias was an ominous sign. Answer two. The sin on which the thoughts run most is the darling sin. Whichever way the thoughts go, the heart goes. He who is in love with a person cannot keep his thoughts off the object. Examine what sin runs most in your mind. What sin is first in your thoughts and greets you in the morning. That is the predominant sin. Answer three. The sin which has most power over us and most easily leads us captive is the one beloved by the soul. There are some sins that a man can resist better. If they come for entertainment, he can more easily put them off, but the bosom sin comes as a suitor, and he cannot deny it, but is overcome by it. The young man in the gospel had repulsed many sins, but there was one sin that soiled him, and that was covetousness. Christians, mark what sin you are most readily led captive by. That is the harlot in your bosom. It is a sad thing that a man should be so bewitched by lust that if it asks him to part with not only half the kingdom, Esther 7, 2, but the whole kingdom of heaven, he must part with it to gratify that lust. Answer 4. The sin which men use arguments to defend is the beloved sin. He that has a jewel in his bosom will defend it for very life. So when there is any sin in the bosom, men will defend it. The sin we advocate and dispute for is the besetting sin. If the sin is passion, we plead for it. I do well to be angry. Jonah 4.9 If the sin is covetousness, we vindicate it and perhaps rest scripture to justify it. That is the sin which lies nearest the heart. Answer 5. The sin which most troubles us and flies most in the face in an hour of sickness and distress. That is the Delilah sin. When Joseph's brethren were distressed, their sin in selling their brother came to remembrance. We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Genesis 42:21. So when a man is on a sickbed, and conscience says, You have been guilty of such a sin, you went on in it, and rolled, rolled it like honey under your tongue conscience is reading him a sad lecture that was the beloved sin for sure answer 6 the sin which a man finds most difficulty in giving up is the endearing sin of all his sons jacob found most difficulty in parting with benjamin joseph is not and simeon is not and you will take benjamin away genesis 42:36 so the sinner says this and that sin i have parted with but must Benjamin go? Must I part with this delightful sin? That goes to the heart. As with a castle that has several forts about it, the first and second fort are taken, but when it comes to the castle, the governor will rather fight and die than yield that. So a man may allow some of his sins to be demolished, but when it comes to one sin, that is the taking of the castle. He will never agree to part with that. That is the master sin for sure. The besetting sin is a God-provoking sin. The wise men of Troy counseled Priam to send Helena back to the Greeks, not permitting himself to be abused any longer by the charms of her beauty, but keeping her within the city would lay the foundation of a fatal war. So we should put away our Delilah sin, lest it incense the God of heaven and make him commence a war against us. The besetting sin is, of all others, most dangerous. As Samson's strength lay in his hair, so the strength of sin lies in this beloved sin. This is like a poison striking the heart, which brings death. A godly man will lay the axe of repentance to this sin and hew it down. He sets this sin, like Uriah, in the forefront of the battle so that it may be slain. He will sacrifice this Isaac. He will pluck out this right eye so that he may see better to go to heaven. Number four, those sins which the world counts lesser. There is no such thing as little sin, yet some may be deemed less comparatively. But a good man will not indulge himself in these, such as, first, sins of omission. Some think it no great matter to omit family or private prayer. They can go for several months and God never hears from them. A godly man will as soon live without food as without prayer. He knows that every creature of God is sanctified by prayer. 1 Timothy 4 5. The bird may shame many Christians. It never takes a drop, but the eye is lifted up toward heaven. Second, a godly man dare not allow himself vain, frothy discourse, much less that which looks like an oath. If God will judge for idle words, will he not much more for idle oaths? Third, a godly man dare not allow himself rash censuring. Some think this a small matter. They will not swear, but they will slander. This is very evil. You wound a man in that which is dearest to him. He who is godly turns all his censures upon himself. He judges himself for his own sins, but is very chary and tender for the good name of another. Use. As you would be numbered among the genealogies of the saints, do not indulge yourself in any sin. Consider the mischief that one sin lived in will do. One, one sin gives Satan as much advantage against you as more sins. The fowler can hold a bird by one wing. Satan held Judas fast by one sin. Two, one sin lived in proves that the heart is not sound. He who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. The person who indulges one sin is a traitorous hypocrite. Three, One sin will make way for more, as a little thief can open the door for more. Sins are linked and chained together. One sin will draw on more. David's adultery made way for murder. One sin never goes alone. If there is only one nest egg, the devil can brood on it. Number four. One sin is as much a breach of God's laws as more sins. Quote, he that shall offend in one point is guilty of all. James 2.10 If a man is guilty of only one of these, he is as much a transgressor of the law as if he were guilty of all. Five. One sin lived in prevents Christ from entering. One stone in the pipe keeps out the water. One sin indulged in obstructs the soul and keeps the streams of Christ's blood from running into it. Number six. One sin lived in will spoil all your good duties. A drop of poison will spoil a glass of wine. Abimelech, a bastard, destroyed 70 of his brethren. Judges 9 5. One bastard sin will destroy 70 prayers. One dead fly will corrupt the box of ointment. Number 7. One sin lived in will will be like a canker worm to eat out the peace of conscience. It takes away the manna from the ark and leaves only a rod. Alas, what a scorpion lies within, so said Seneca. One sin is a pirate to rob a Christian of his comfort. One jarring string puts all the music out of tune. One sin countenanced will spoil the music of conscience. Number eight, one sin allowed... Will damn as well as more sins. One disease is enough to kill. If offence is if offence is never made so strong, leave only open one gap, and the wild beast may enter and tread down the corn. If only one sin is allowed in the soul, you leave open a gap for the devil to enter. It is a simile of Chrysostom that one soldier may have his helmet and his breastplate on, but if only one place has no armor, the bullet may enter there and he may as well be shot as if he had no armor on. So if you favor only one sin, you leave a part of your soul unprotected, and the bullet of God's wrath may enter there and shoot you. One sin may shut you out of heaven. As Jerome says, what difference is there between being shut out for more sins or for one? Therefore, beware of cherishing one sin. One millstone will sink a man into the sea as well as a hundred. Number nine. One sin harbored in the soul will unfit us for suffering. How soon an hour of trial may come. A man who has hurt his shoulder cannot carry a heavy burden, and a man who has any guilt in his conscience cannot carry the cross of Christ. Will he who cannot deny his lust for Christ deny his life for Christ? One unmortified sin in the soul will bring forth the bitter fruit of apostasy. If, then, you would show yourselves godly, give a certificate of divorce to every sin, kill the Goliath sin, let not sin reign Romans six twelve in the original, it is let not sin king it over you. Grace and sin may be together, but grace and the love of sin cannot, therefore, parley with sin no longer, but with the spear or mortification, spill the heart-blood. Of every sin. Section 20. A godly man is good in his relationships. To be good in general is not enough, but we must show piety in our relationships. Number 1. He who is good as a magistrate is godly. The magistrate is God's representative. A godly magistrate holds the balance of justice and gives everyone his right. Quote, Thou shalt not respect persons; neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes. Deuteronomy 16:19. A magistrate must judge the cause, not the person. He who allows himself to be corrupted by bribes is not a judge but a party. A magistrate must do that which is according to law. Acts 23:3. And in order that he may do justice, he must examine the cause. The archer who wishes to shoot right must first see the target. Number two, he who is good as a minister is godly. Ministers must be first painstaking, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Second Timothy four two. The minister must not be idle. Sloth is as inexcus- inexcusable in a minister as sleeping is in a sentry. John the Baptist was a voice crying. Matthew three three. A dumb minister is of no more use than a dead physician. A man of God must work in the Lord's vineyard. It was Augustine's wish that Christ might find him at his coming either praying or preaching. Second, a minister must be knowledgeable. The priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth. Malachi two seven. It was said in honor of Gregory Nanzianzine that he was an ocean of divinity. The prophets of old were called seers first Samuel nine nine. It is absurd to have blind seers. Christ said to Peter, Feed my sheep, John twenty one sixteen. But how sad it is when the shepherd needs to be fed. Ignorance in a minister is like blindness in an occultist. Under the law he who had the plague in his head was unclean. Leviticus thirteen forty four. Third ministers must be a plain preacher suiting his matter and style to the capacity of his audience. 1 Corinthians 14.19 Some ministers, like eagles, love to soar aloft in abstruse metaphysical notions, thinking they are most admired when they are least understood. They who preach in the clouds, instead of hitting their people's conscience, shoot over their heads. Fourth, ministers must be zealous in reproving sin. Rebuke them sharply. Titus one thirteen. Epiphanius said of Elijah that he sucked fire out of his mother's breasts. A man of God must suck the fire of zeal out of the breasts of scripture. Zeal in a minister is as proper as fire on an altar. Some are afraid to reprove, like the swordfish, which has a sword in his head but is without a heart. So they carry the sword of the Spirit about them, but have no heart to draw it out in reproof against sin. How many have sown pillows under their people Ezekiel 13:18 making them sleep so securely that they never woke until they were in hell Fifth He must be holy in heart and life First minister must be holy in heart How sad it is for a minister to preach that to others which he never felt in his own soul to exhort others to holiness and himself be a stranger to it Oh, that this were not too often so. How many blow the Lord's trumpet with foul breath? Also holy in life. Under the law, before priests served at the altar, they washed in the laver. Such as serve in the Lord's house must first be washed from gross sin in the laver of repentance. The life of a minister should be a walking Bible. Basil said of Gregory Nanzianzine that he thundered in his doctrine and lightened in his conduct. A minister must imitate John the Baptist, who was not only a voice crying, but a light shining, John 5.35. Those who live in contradiction to what they preach disgrace this excellent calling. They turn their books into cups. And though they are angels by office, yet they are devils in their lives. Jeremiah twenty three fifteen Number three, he who is good as a husband is godly. He fills up that relationship with love. Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians five twenty five. 25. The vine twisting its branches around the elm and embracing it may be an emblem of that entire love, which should be in the conjugal relationship. A married condition would be sad if it had cares to embitter it and not love to sweeten it. Love is the best diamond in the marriage ring. Isaac loved Rebekah, Genesis twenty four sixty seven. Unkindness in this close relationship is very unhappy. We read in Heathen Offers that Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon, in order to revenge an injury received from her husband, first rent the veil of her chastity and afterwards consented to his death. The husband should show his love to his wife by covering infirmities by avoiding occasions of strife, by sweet, endearing expressions, by pious counsel, by love tokens, by encouraging what he sees amiable or virtuous in her, by mutual prayer, by associating with her, unless detained by urgency of business. The pilot who leaves his ship and abandons it entirely to the merciless waves declares he does not value it or reckon there is any treasure in it. The apostle gives a good reason why there should be mutual love between husband and wife. Quote, that your prayers be not hindered. First Peter 3.7 Where passions prevail, their, their prayer is either intermitted or interrupted. Number four, he who is good as a father is godly. First, a father must drop holy instructions into his children. Quote, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians six four. This is what Abraham did. Quote, I know Abraham that he will command his children and his household and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Genesis 18, 19. Children are young plants that must be watered with good education so that they may, with Obadiah, fear the Lord from their youth up. Verse Kings eighteen twelve. Plato said, In vain does he expect a harvest who has been negligent in sowing, nor can a parent expect to reap any good from a child, where he has not sown the seed of wholesome instruction. And though, notwithstanding all counsel and admonition, the child should die in sin, yet it is a comfort to a godly parent to think that, before his child died, he gave it spiritual medicine. Second, a parent must pray for his children. Monica, the mother of Augustine, prayed for his conversion, and someone said it was impossible that a son of so many prayers and tears should perish. The soul of your child is in a snare, and will you not pray that it may recover out of the snare of the devil? 2 Timothy 2.26 Many parents are careful to lay up portions for their children, but they do not lay up prayers for them. Third, a parent must give his children discipline. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Proverbs 23.13 The rod beats out the dust and moth of sin. A child indulged and humored in wickedness will prove a burden instead of a blessing. David pampered Adonijah, quote, His father was not displeased with him at any time, saying, Why hast thou done so? 1 Kings 1.6 And afterwards, he was a grief of heart to his father and wanted to put him off his throne. Correction is a hedge of thorns to stop children in their full career to hell. Number five. He who is good as a master is godly. A godly man promotes religion in his family. He sets up piety in his house as well as in his heart. Quote, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart Psalm and one two. I and my household will serve the Lord, Joshua twenty four, fifteen. I find it written in honor of Cranmer that his family was a nursery of piety. A godly man's house is a little church, Quote, the church which is in his house Colossians four fifteen. First, a godly man makes known the oracles of God to those who are under his roof. He reads the word and perfumes his house with prayer. It is recorded to the Jews that they had sacrifices in their family as well as at the tabernacle, Exodus 12.3. Second, a godly man provides necessities. He relieves his servants in health and sickness. He is not like the Amalekite who shook off his servant when he was sick, 1 Samuel 30, Verse 13 but rather like the good centurion who sought Christ for the healing of his sick servant, Matthew 8, 5. Third, a godly man sets his servants a good example. He is sober and heavenly in his deportment. His virtuous life is a good mirror for the servants of the family to dress themselves by. Number six, he who is good in the relationship of a child is godly. He honors his parents. Philo the Jew placed the fifth commandment in the first table as if children had not performed their whole devotion to God till they had given honor to their parents. This honoring of parents consists in two things. First, in respecting their persons, which respect is shown both by humility of speech and by gesture. The opposite of this is when a child behaves himself in an unseemly and proud manner. Among the Lacedaemonians, if a child had behaved imperiously toward his parent, it was published by authority that it was lawful for the father to appoint whom he would be to appoint among the Lacedaemonians, if a child had behaved imperiously toward his parent, it was published by authority that it was lawful for the father to appoint whom he would to be his heir and to disinherit that child. Second, obeying their commands children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6 1. Duty is the interest which children pay their parents on the capital they have had from them. Christ has set all children a pattern of obedience to their parents. Quote, He was subject unto them. Luke two fifty one. The Rechabites were eminent for this. I set before the Rechabites pots full of wine and said to them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying, You shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Jeremiah 35, 5 and 6. Solon was asked why, among the many laws he made, none was against disobedient children. He answered it was because he thought none would be so wicked. God has punished children who have refused to pay the tribute of obedience. Absalom, a disobedient son, was hanged in an oak between heaven and earth as being worthy of neither. Manlius, an old man, was reduced to much poverty and having a rich son entreated him only for charity but could not obtain it. The son disowned him as his father, using reproachful language. The poor old man let tears fall as witness to his grief and went away. God, to revenge this disobedience upon his son, soon afterwards struck him with madness. He, in whose heart godliness lives, makes as much conscience of the fifth commandment as of the first. Number seven. He who is good as a servant is godly. Quote, servants, be subject to them who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Colossians three twenty two Ephesians six five. The goodness of servants lies in, first, diligence. Abraham's servants quickly dispatched the business his master entrusted him with Genesis twenty four thirty three. Second, cheerfulness. Servants must be free willers, like the centurion servants, quote. If I say to one go, he goeth, Luke 7, 8. Third, faithfulness, which consists in two things. First, in not defrauding, not purloining, Titus two ten; And second, in keeping counsel. It proves the badness of a stomach when it cannot retain what is put into it, and the badness of a servant who, when he cannot retain those secrets which his master has committed to him. Fourth, silence, not answering again, Titus 2, 9. It is better to correct a fault than to minimize it. And what may stimulate a servant in his work is that encouraging scripture, quote, Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Colossians 3.24 If Christ should bid you do a piece of work for him, would you not do it? While you serve your master, you serve the Lord Christ. If you ask what salary you shall have, quote, you shall have the reward of the inheritance use one is it the grand sign of a godly man to be relatively holy then the lord be merciful to us how few godly ones are to be found many put on a coat of profession they will pray and discourse on points of religion but quote what meaneth this bleating of the sheep 1 samuel 15:14 they are not good in their relationships how bad it is when christians are defective in relative piety can we call a bad magistrate godly? He perverts equity. Quote, Do you judge uprightly, ye sons of men? Ye weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. Psalm fifty-eight, verses one and two. Can we call a bad parent godly? He never teaches his child the way to heaven. He's like an ostrich, which is cruel to her young. Job thirty-nine, sixteen. Can we call a bad employer godly? Many employers leave their religion at church, as the clerk does his book. They have nothing of God at home, their houses are not Bethels but Bethavens, not little temples but little hells. How many employers at the last day must plead guilty at the bar? Though they have fed their servants' bellies, they have starved their souls. Can we call a bad child godly? He stops his ears to his parents' counsel. You may as well call him who is disloyal a good subject. Can we call a bad servant godly? He is slothful and willful. He is more ready to spy a fault in another than to correct it in himself. To call one who is bad in his relationships godly is a contradiction. It is to call evil good. Isaiah 5:20. Use number two. As we desire to have God approve of us, let us show godliness in our relationships. Not to be good in our relationships spoils all our other good things. Naaman was an honorable man, but he was a leper. Second Kings five one that but spoiled everything, so such a person is a great hearer, but he neglects relative duties, this stains the beauty of all his other actions, as in printing, though the letter is never so well shaped, yet if it is not set in the right place, it spoils the sense. So let a man have many things commendable in him, yet if he is not good in his right place, making conscience of how he walks in his relationships. He does harm to religion. There are many to whom Christ will say at last, as to the young man, Yet lackest thou one thing, Luke eighteen twenty-two. You have misbehaved in your relative capacity. As therefore we cherish our salvation in the honor of religion, let us shine in that orb of relationships where God has placed us. There you go, brother. Another two sections in the book and more food for thought. Godly man does not indulge in sin. This discussion of the hidden sin or the beloved or cherished sin is very helpful. Because I think sometimes it's really easy to justify ourselves and to think I'm doing pretty well. Just as was brought up in this last section, the story of the rich young ruler applies here as well. If you recall the story, he, he, this young man approaches Jesus, asks him what he would do to inherit eternal life, what was left. Jesus asked him if he had kept the commandments. And the young man said, yes, I've done all these things since my youth. Then Jesus, who saw through him and saw his true need and his true issue, and as Mark puts it, loved him as he looked at him, said to him, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Because Jesus knew that this young man's beloved, cherished, secret sin was covetousness. It was pride in possessions. And so it says the young man went away sorrowful because he had much wealth. This isn't a parable, as some would try to to claim, that... We should all sell everything we have and give it to the poor or else we're not really following Jesus. The point here was that Jesus knew that this young man had a secret sin that he would hold on to more than anything else. And Jesus, as a good surgeon, put his finger on that one place and said, here is the sickness. In the same way, our brother Thomas opens our eyes and reminds us of all the ways our cherished and secret sins can display themselves in our daily life. The thing that we don't want to have talked about, the thing that we don't want to give up, the thing that we protect and defend. I thought that was a really great observation that we will speak up loudest and try to defend and justify most quickly the place where we have a hidden sin. So for example, someone who struggles with lust and pornography, Will most vocally seek to justify consuming entertainment that feeds that fleshly thought process when they are questioned about it they try to make arguments against it and 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 try to justify it and compare themselves to others and do all of these things and the point here i'm I'm not going to pick out you know us t- tempted to name specific things for example but The point here is not the specific entertainment, but it's it's the question of if someone points out an issue that may be sinful, and your first thought is to defend yourself vocally and strongly, passionately, it may be a good idea to take a step back and say, is this really defensible? Is this really something worth defending? Now, there are times when someone may accuse you of something that's not sin, and it's right and good to lovingly, carefully correct that person. You know, they may say, well, the way you're acting or the way you're responding or the way you're speaking about this or that issue is sinful. Well, no, not necessarily. You know, we've talked about before in, in past sections that a righteous man, a godly man is a, is a zealous man. And so sometimes we speak with passion and with fire and with heart about things that matter, about the things of God, about issues of right and wrong. And there may be those who would oppose us and say, well, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but the way you're saying it is sinful. Well, not necessarily. The, may, the way we're saying it may be appropriate. So it's the, the point here is not that anytime someone questions you, you're in the wrong. The point is when a brother raises or sister, but you know, a brother raises an issue, raises a question of sin, something they're concerned about, something they see in your life. If one of one of your one of one of one of our brothers, one of the elders uh, uh, someone who you know and trust points points their finger at an area of your life that may be an area of sin and your first thought is all the 17 ways that they're wrong and how you're going to tell them off and all this all this stuff that's where the caution flag should immediately go up and we need to slow down and assess what's happening in our hearts because that's where there probably is the fortress of sin that we're trying to defend so I found this to be incredibly helpful and incredibly challenging and i'm thinking very clearly about a couple areas that i know are areas where i'm probably guilty of this of having those closely held secret sins or pet sins that i haven't seriously dealt with as i ought and uh that's going to be the subject of my personal prayer time with the Lord over the next couple days as I think through this. And then as if the first punch wasn't a a gut punch enough, the next punch is, are we godly in our relationships? And Watson goes through the various relationships of a man's life in order to ask, are we godly in, in our conduct as a husband, as a father, as a child to our parents, as a master or a servant in our work relationships. Are we godly if we have a role or responsibility in public office? He uses the word magistrate. That's anyone who's serving in a public office of some kind. And then, of course, are we faithful? Are we godly if we are called to be ministers? And that one is especially important um, because of that that uh, vital vital responsibility and that great weight of uh judgment that falls on those who misuse and abuse the office of a minister of the gospel so i think that's another area where we can examine ourselves to find are we being faithful in our role as all of these things all these relationships in our life and he at the end i think brings it home where he says if you are able to follow and, and be, a, be a godly man and a faithful man and a pious man in all of these ways, but your relationships are unhealthy, you're not healthy and you need to deal with those. So I think that's another area where we really should examine ourselves. We'll hold ourselves up against the mirror of scripture. Where do we fall short? Where Where should we grow? What needs our attention? It may be that as you are walking through your daily life as a disciple of Jesus and you are learning the scriptures and you're doing all the personal devotional stuff really, really well, your prayer and your Bible reading and your giving and your, your, you know, uh, witnessing and all of these things are all, all locked down. They're all, all humming along great. But if you are cold to your wife or harsh with your children or you are not a hard worker at work, or you are um, not consistent with your behavior from Sunday to Monday in the areas of influence that God has entrusted to you, you got problems, man, and you need to deal with it. And if you're quick to defend yourself, then we go back to the last section, because that may be the area of secret sin that you're trying to protect. So some good things for us to think about today, some really challenging things for us to think about today. And I hope that as you're working through this, as you're thinking through this, I I pray that this is uh, part of the process that God is using to refine you as a man, as a follower of Jesus, uh, as he is me, because this has definitely been really feeding into a lot of my thought process, my self-examination and and some of, my, some of my my prayer and my Bible study, and my consideration. Um, which That's why we're doing this, right? That's why we're, this isn't just because we think it's interesting or intellectually stimulating. My, my goal with all of this, my goal with this book is that as we go through it together, it would challenge us and it would reveal places where we all need to grow, where each of us needs uh, to mature and to grow as a believer. So I, I pray this is Uh, helpful for you. I pray it's good for you. And um, let's close out uh, in prayer for this week uh, right now. Lord God, thank you for this good work of uh, devotional literature. We have been working through this this gospel-drenched, scripture-soaked work by our brother Thomas Watson and the uh, mirror that it holds up to us and I pray for my brother and for myself, as we examine ourselves, that there would be no area of sin that is cherished in our lives. The, the secret hidden sins, the things that we protect, the things that we excuse, the things that we defend, that we know are sinful, but still hold on to. I pray that you would pry those out of our hands, that you would help us to put those to death, that we would be quick to bring the killing blow to these sins that wrap themselves around us like like boa constrictors tightening their grip. And I pray that as we do so, we will be faithful, not just in our words, but in our deeds and especially in our relationships, starting with those closest to us, those in our own household. I pray that we would love, for those of us who are married, that we would love our wives well, that we would love them sacrificially, that we would lead them boldly, that we would care for their physical needs, their their emotional and intellectual needs, and their spiritual needs. That we would care for our wives the way that Christ cares for his church and provides for her, protects her, and feeds her. I pray that we would love our children well for those of us who have children uh, entrusted to us. That we would lead them, that we would guide them, teach them, discipline them as we ought so that we can fulfill our righteous responsibilities toward them i pray for for all of us who have parents who are living that we would honor our parents well and that our relationship to them even if it's strained even if it's broken because of sin that we would still in our words and deeds that we would seek to honor our parents in order to be obedient to the lord and then for all of us who have relationships with uh, uh, a workplace and people in a workplace either as as a supervisor as a manager as an owner or as a worker. I pray that we would be faithful in those uh, positions so that we would be consistent and uh, sincere in our words and deeds that we would work hard as unto the Lord and that our work relationships and our conduct and our diligence, would be a testimony to the goodness of God, who is a faithful uh, uh, leader, faithful ruler, and a worker who creates and does good in the world. And I pray that we would seek to follow that example as well. In all these things, Father, I pray that our our our, our lives would be consistent with the scriptures that our lives would be consistent with our profession and that we would walk as righteous men, as godly, holy, pious men before you in obedience and that our light would shine brightly to the world around us. Pray these things in Jesus' good name, amen. All right, brother, enjoy the rest of your week. We'll see you soon.